You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everyone. We're going to an event called Theology Beer Camp. It's hosted by previous podcast guest, Trip Fuller. And you'll get to nerd out if you go with scholars and enjoy some wild live podcasts, which is always a lot of fun. Have some serious fun at a tailgate party, take part in fall festivities, enjoy quality craft beer, and hang with some of your favorite podcasts. There's a lot of podcasters and people coming. Some of my excitement, though, comes from some of the musical guests like Derek Webb, Dan from Jars of Clay, Trey Pearson. So there's a lot of folks coming. Listen, it's happening October 19 to 21 in Springfield, Missouri, and you can get more info and sign up at the website address theologybeer.camp. And this is really important. When you go to theologybeer.camp, use the code B4NP, that's the number four, B4NP Godpod for $25 off your registration. Hope to see you there. Hey folks, on today's episode, we're talking about the Talmud with Richard Kalmian. Now, Richard is the professor of Talmud and Rabbinics at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he has taught since 1982. Jared, what were you doing in 1982? I was not born yet. You were not even on this earth. I was and he not. was doing serious stuff, man. Exactly. Exactly. So, that's impressive. That's very impressive. Uh, yeah. He's the author of several books and numerous articles on the interpretation of rabbinic stories, ancient Jewish history, and the development of rabbinic literature, which is some of what we talk about today. And his most recent book is titled Migrating Tales, The Talmud's Narratives and Their Historical Context. So let's get into the episode. For me, the religious ideal is to have numerous possibilities and that all of these possibilities are authentically Jewish. I love the spirit of free inquiry and unresolved debate. And the fact that for every question, there are four different possibilities. So you're expanding the degree to which Judaism can be a growing and flourishing tradition, even in the modern world. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, Richard, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited for this conversation. I'm sure it's going to be very interesting. Thank you very much for inviting me. So the first question is, what is the Talmud? Maybe a brief definition to help us kind of get going and at least situate us in a context here. The Talmud is a commentary on the earlier traditions that developed based on the Bible and based on an earlier rabbinic work called the Mishnah. It consists of everything that the rabbis, the Jewish sages who lived from the first to the roughly seventh century CE, which is the common era, otherwise known as AD in 
Christian tradition. So everything that they thought about and talked about and lived during that period. And there are two Talmuds, actually. One is the Babylonian Talmud, which was produced in the Persian Empire between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in what is modern-day Iraq. And the other is the Palestinian Talmud, also called the Yerushalmi, which was produced in the land of Israel under the Roman Empire between the 1st and the 4th or 5th century CE. That's very helpful. Richard, would you, just while we're on this topic, maybe the difference between the Babylonian and the Palestinian Talmud and why would there be a Babylonian Talmud at all? Okay, why would there be a Babylonian Talmud at all? Because there was a very major Jewish community in the Persian Empire that formed after the Roman destruction of the Jewish temple in the year 70 CE. And even before that, going back to the destruction of the first temple in the 6th century BCE, the Jews don't like to mark their time based on Christ. So that's why they came up with this other way of doing it, BCE and CE, which doesn't mention Christ. Right. Okay. Instead, they use the designation of the common era, but it amounts to the same thing. But anyway, those two major destructions, the destruction of the first and second temple, along with it came the transplanting of an extremely large number of Jews from the land of Israel to first the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire, again, in what is modern-day Iraq. And if anything, the Babylonian Talmud is larger than the Palestinian Talmud, reflecting the greater prominence of the Babylonian Jewish community at that time than the Palestinian Jewish community. And Richard, is it also more, is the Babylonian Talmud, I I don't know what the right word to use here, is it more important, more authoritative, more widely used? Yes, but that is primarily due to the fact that it had two centuries longer to develop than the Palestinian Talmud did. The Palestinian Talmud was formed between the first and the fourth or fifth centuries, whereas the Babylonian Talmud was developed between the first and the sixth or seventh centuries. So it had 200 more years to continue to develop. So it's larger and more comprehensive and contains more. Really, we have to get used to altering our perspective when we're talking about the Jewish community in antiquity, because we're so used from our Western point of view to be focused on the Western part of the Roman Empire, where the capital was Rome in Italy. The Persian Empire was equally prominent, and as far as the Jews were concerned, was more important than the Roman Empire. Okay. Again, while we're on the topic here, earlier you mentioned that the Talmud has roots in the biblical tradition, and then also you mentioned the Mishnah. So, could you just briefly explain what is the Mishnah and what is the relationship between the Mishnah and the Talmud? Because that always gets confusing. Uh huh. Yes. The Mishnah is a record primarily of laws that developed on a wide variety of topics that the rabbis thought were important. And this developed in the Roman Empire as part of the literature of the Jews that developed under Rome in Israel. But the Talmud then split off into two parts. One continued in the land of Israel, that's the Palestinian Talmud or the Yerushalmi, and the other one developed to the east in the Persian Empire. 
So did the Mishnah grow into the Talmud? I'm still not clear about the relationship between the two, or does the Talmud contain the Mishnah? Or Yes, the Talmud contains the Mishnah. Okay. And it's very different from the Mishnah in that the Mishnah, as I said, is primarily law. It's what the rabbis, the Jewish sages of the second and early third centuries thought was important, both societally and religiously. The Talmud takes off from there. Both Talmuds do. And so the Babylonian Talmud, for example, which developed in the land of Persia, forms a vast commentary on the Mishnah. Oh, okay. So it's a commentary on the Mishnah. On the Mishnah, right. Is it sort of like keeping the dialogue going or something? Or Yes. But as I said, the Mishnah is primarily laws, so there's not too much dialogue in the Mishnah. There are differences of opinion constantly, okay? But there is not too much back and forth between the different rabbis, the different sages that are quoted in the Mishnah. But when you get to the Talmuds, there's constant dialogue between them. And that becomes the most characteristic form of discourse in the Talmud. Objections, responses, questions, answers. And really, the point of the Talmud seems to be to develop people's ability to think, okay, to puzzle things out, and really almost to avoid coming to conclusions. Okay, So the preference that when you get to the Talmuds is that both opinions that are featured in the earlier sources, such as the Mishnah, end up having something to base themselves on so that they don't become refuted. Okay, And so it's extremely important to the Talmud to keep these different opinions alive and keep them relevant. Why did the Talmud originate? Like, why was it important to write these things down and keep a record of them? And on the flip side of that, why did it stop? Like, you mentioned the Palestinian Talmud goes to the 4th, 5th century. The Babylonian Talmud goes to a little later, 6th or 7th century. Why would it just stop at those times and not continue? Well, those are very good questions. It seems to have stopped because the need developed to comment on the commentary. So the Babylonian Talmud was getting so big, so huge, and the Palestinian Talmud, even though it wasn't as big as the Babylonian Talmud, was also very sizable. People who lived in the what was no longer antiquity, this was the beginning of the development of the Middle Ages, they needed help in understanding the more ancient sources. So these ancient sources were collected, and this really happened over a long period of time, each generation collected the achievement of the previous generation, but there probably wasn't a single event that took place that caused it to stop. It was probably the need to collect and interpret that led to different kinds of literature forming. And that different kind of literature is the development of what's known as Gaonic commentary in the early Middle Ages, both in Israel and in Babylonia. And that began to put the discussions of the Talmud into practice, okay? Because you read the Talmud and it's typically not at all clear what you're supposed to do, okay? It's clear what the parameters are of rabbinic thought, okay? That both this and is opposite, both of them are legitimate Jewish options. But what do we do? That's not at all clear. And so with the Gaonim began the process of putting the Talmudic literature into practical form. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? 
They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Yeah, you know, it, it just strikes me how... I mean, I, I may be wrong in phrasing it this way, Richard, and by all means, please correct me, but the Talmud is, is like a codification of a discussion or debate. And as you put it so well, it's about thinking, you know, and, and learning how to think through difficult problems. And you know, I'm saying this for the benefit of some of our listeners who are, many of whom are Christian and who've been raised that you know, the answer to all of life's problems are simply in the biblical text itself. And what I've appreciated about the Jewish tradition is the overt engagement with tradition, which is a self-developing. And it's not always about finding the right answer, but uh, maybe being wise and trying to understand situations and apply the tradition to new times and places. So, I mean, I find that to be a very valuable lesson for at least Christians that I know to sort of internalize a bit. I think that's a, a good point. I would just slightly modify your definition of the Talmud as a codification, because codification to me implies that's already the stage of deciding what to do. Ah. As I said, if you look just in the Talmud, you're not going to have any idea of what to do, because both one opinion and its opposite are upheld as valid options. And it's only when you get to the Gaonim 
and later the Rishonim, okay, and then Achronim, uh, define those terms later on, that you get decisions about what to do based on the competing opinions in the Talmud. The Talmuds are a record of what constitutes Jewish tradition. It collects the full gamut of what is valid Jewishly, but the decision as to what to do, that seems to be left to the individual. And it's not until the post-Talmudic times that decisions start to be made about, well, okay, so how do we take all these opinions and put them into practice? That's really helpful. So it collects the tradition, but doesn't prescribe any behavior. Right. I'm curious then, how does the Talmud function in modern Judaism? How is it used? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. There are the different denominations of Judaism. There's the Orthodox, there's conservative, there's reform, and other smaller denominations of Judaism. There are even non-denominational traditions within modern Judaism. And the Orthodox sees the Talmud as the basis for modern Jewish life. So nowadays, within Orthodoxy, it tends to be very difficult to do things other than what are specified in the Talmud. So if so, can I can I ask you when you say specified in the Talmud? Yes. Even though that is a more dialogical objection and response kind of text, does orthodoxy downplay or ignore like Gonic interpretation and the other interpretations that you mentioned, which tries to put more of a fine point on what actually to do? Yes, that's true. I actually come from a belief in the conservative position. So I'll explain what that means in a second. So you have to realize that I have my prejudices. Oh, don't we all? And so if somebody were to speak to you from an orthodox perspective, they would have a much different characterization of it than I do. But I find that orthodoxy does not do justice to what I consider to be the true heroes in our tradition, which is the personalities in the Talmud. I love the spirit of free inquiry and unresolved debate. And the fact that for every question, there are four different possibilities. That's what I prize so much. The heroes for me are the rabbis of the Talmud. The heroes for the Orthodox, I find, are more both the Gaonim, who made decisions, and the Poskim, who came after the Gaonim, and Posek means the decisors. Okay, they made decisions. So they took the Talmud, and in my opinion, they did violence to the text in using it as a blueprint for Jewish life. Okay, in other words, to say, well, based on this Talmud discussion, we know already within the Talmud what the Talmud thinks is authoritative. I think that that approach is totally wrong. As I said, somebody who is coming from an Orthodox point of view would totally disagree with me. So then maybe can you keep speaking on that? Then from the conservative viewpoint, what's the function of the Talmud? Because what I'm hearing you say is from the Orthodox, it is the groundswell out of which these later interpreters came to their conclusions, and then they sort of read that back into the Talmud, and now they have a codified way of life that is spelled out for them in this blueprint way. But the conservative would respect the indeterminacy of the Talmud. And so how then does it function in the religious life of a conservative community? Again, this is my own opinion, and there are plenty even within the conservative movement that would disagree with me on that. And they use the Talmud in a different way than the Orthodox to draw conclusions. But I don't want to make a good case for them because I disagree with them. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate Appreciate your honesty. honesty. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. So uh, I think that for me, the religious ideal 
is to have numerous possibilities and that all of these possibilities are authentically Jewish. And even what we can do is through interpretation, different ways of interpreting the Talmud, which has have been developed over the past, especially 100 years, we can come up with new interpretations of what the Talmud is trying to tell us. So we thought for all of these hundreds and hundreds of years that the Talmud's possibilities were X, Y, and Z. But once we learn to read the text correctly, we realize, I'm saying, that no, they're also A, B, and C. And those are also legitimate Jewish alternatives. Mm -hmm. So you're expanding the degree to which Judaism can be a growing and flourishing tradition, even in the modern world. It hasn't been lost, I'm sure, on many of our listeners when you talk about using the tradition as a blueprint. I think you use the word blueprint. And and I know for many Christians that there's an analogous situation of looking to, let's say, the New Testament period as uh, an unalterable blueprint for answering every question we might have today. And that's a tension, right, in, in Christianity between, you know, you have fundamentalism and evangelicalism, which are similar but not the same thing, and then you have more progressive Christians or liberal Christians. And I find it just fascinating that some of those same dynamics appear in Judaism as well. Could you flesh it out a little bit? Because we have, I guess, maybe going in order of like orthodoxy to liberalism, you have orthodoxy, and then you have conservative, which is more open, I guess. And and then what what other main facets or, or aspects of Judaism can we talk about that might even have yet different approaches to tradition and to the Talmud? Well, there's also Reform Judaism. And by the way, those three major denominations of Judaism, it's not like the orthodoxy, that orthodoxy comes first and conservatism comes second and reform comes third. It's actually the opposite. Reform precedes everything. Reform started in the mid-1800s and it was a desire to rid Judaism of its antiquated elements because it was seen as an ancient tradition that was no longer particularly relevant. Well, with Darwin and all, yeah, yeah, right. and other things, right? I guess they started thinking about some things differently. Right. Yes, exactly. So reform came first, then orthodoxy is a reaction to reform, okay? To say, no, you can't do that. You can't totally change a tradition that is that old. So orthodoxy was a reaction to reform. And I would say it's a reaction to an overreaction to reform by insisting that Judaism had always basically been the same way, and it couldn't change. Okay, Now, that's a caricature of orthodoxy. And in fact, there's a lot more room for movement and growth in orthodoxy as, as well as in the other denominations. So conservatism grew out of orthodoxy as a way to say, no, we don't have to be that extreme in reacting against reform. Okay. Is that clear? Oh, yeah, yeah that's I mean, very clear. Pete and I are nodding our heads because the it parallels our lives. Protestant, <laughs> Protestant trajectory in the 20th century, yeah. especially in America, follows a very similar trajectory. And even at the same time, you know, right. because you have fundamentalism reacting to iterations of Christianity that are dealing that are with. responded to evolution. Exactly, and all things. that stuff. And then you have the evangelicals who react. Who are like, Let's not be crazy here and the hyper, you know, repristination mm. of everything. And and so it seems like, again, not, not to put anyone in a box, Richard, but conservative 
there seem to be some loose parallels between that and evangelicalism, even though I wouldn't wish that on anybody. That it seems to be there are some parallels there. Can you say a little bit more about the structure of the Talmud? And if someone were to pick up a Talmud and start flipping through it, what would they find? Okay. First, they would find the Mishnah. The whole Mishnah is quoted in the Talmud and also bits and pieces of the Mishnah, you know, like a sentence here and a sentence there. The part that becomes the focus for discussion in the Talmud, that's also quoted. And you also have in the Talmud quotations from the Bible. So the Talmud is not only commentary on the Mishnah and other early contemporary sources, I mean, contemporary to the Mishnah, it's also a commentary on the Bible, okay, verse by verse. And that kind of literature is called Midrash, okay, from the word darash, which means to explicate. And the thing that is being explicated there is the Torah, the Bible, okay? And in addition, you have lots of other kinds of traditions, such as stories about the rabbis, the sages, who are called Chachamim in Hebrew, which literally means the wise ones or the wise guys, <laughs> even though that has a connotation which is not totally accurate, the wise ones. And it's particularly these sage stories that I love to interpret because very often they have values that are just totally wild, and particularly these developed in the Babylonian Talmud. And there was something going on in Iraq in the 4th to 6th centuries that really led to the development of this outrageous creative literature, Agadic it's called, that I haven't been able to find a parallel to in any other literature in the world. It's just some amazing stuff. Nowadays, a lot of modern scholarship is devoted to interpreting these sage stories, just because they're a totally untapped or have been a totally untapped resource. And when you're when you're talking about expanding what is legitimate within Judaism, that is an extremely fertile vein to explore. Can we unpack a little bit more just what's in the Talmud and the structure of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a multi-volume work, right? Yes. And how is it divided? It's divided according to chapters of the Mishnah. Okay, so you start off with the first tractate, they call it, is a tractate on brachot, blessings. And basically, that is a collection of laws, some, some stories as well, but mostly laws about how a person should go through their day and make use of the things that God has given us in this world via blessings. Okay, so the basic blessing formula is Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, and then it continues on like that. Okay, blessed are you, God, creator of the world who has created the fruit of the tree, for example. So there, for virtually every phenomenon in the world, there's a different blessing. So when you see a rainbow, for example, you're supposed to make a blessing. When you eat a fruit of the vine, a grape or wine, when you drink wine, you're supposed to make a different kind of blessing. So that's what the basic building blocks of the Talmud on tractate brachot is. Okay, Then there are nine chapters in brachot in the Mishnah, and so there are similarly nine chapters in the Talmud on Brachot. How many tractates are there? A lot? Yes, upwards of 40. Okay. Okay, and each one of those would have a certain number of chapters that are reflected. Yes. Okay. Okay, okay then there's after Brachot, the next tractates are all in the order of Zra'im, which is their agricultural laws. And this was particularly important 
in the ancient Jewish society when people were living in the land of Israel, because that's where that's where the laws that are specified in the Bible that have to do with like giving charity, for example, giving the corners of your field to the poor, or giving a portion of your crop to the poor or to the priest. Okay, that makes up the rest of the order. It's called the seder of Zeraim, and after Zeraim, you get the order of nashim of women. And one thing you have to realize about the ancient rabbis is that they were very androcentric, meaning for them, the norm was male. Okay, So female was considered extraordinary, and therefore they needed to have a way to deal with it religiously. Okay, Then after that, actually before Nashim came Moed, which is the different holidays that are mentioned in the Bible. There's Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the new year. There's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Sukkot, the holiday of Sukkot, and all the other practices that revolve around appointed times. Moed means appointed time. So there's another tractate in there that's called Ta'anit, which means fasting. So an extremely important part of daily life in ancient Israel was the need for rain because, and this is true even in modernity, that there's not a lot of rain in Israel. So it has to be extremely important for people, for Jews to be able to do what they can to help it along religiously in the many instances in which there's drought. Okay. It's not as important in the land of Babylonia because the Persians had this tremendous system of irrigation. It's not like Iraq today, which is extremely dry as well. But back then, it was extremely fertile because of the, the Persians were expert at making canals, bringing water to everybody. So after that, there's another order of the Mishnah called Nizikin, which has to do with civil law, Okay, both the court system and the administration of punishments and uh, torts. So for example, there's Baba Kama, Baba Matsya, Baba Batra. Those are known as the Bavot, three orders in which there is a detailed collection of laws that deal with what happens when a person hits another, causes damage to another. Okay, How do you deal with that? And then, as usual, there is more than one possibility. It's a fairly comprehensive, in other words, view of life Yes, and, and, and addressing not everything, but a lot of things that can be used as a basis for wise deliberation on things that come up. I'm just, is there a, it's a very Christian question to ask here. Like, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Is there a part of the Talmud that you return to, that you get a lot out of, something there that you find life-giving? Well, you're right. It's a difficult question to answer. I, I think my personal favorite is Tractate Sanhedrin which is the collection of laws about the court system. But in particular, there are a lot of very wonderful stories about the Jews interacting with Christians, actually, and with them interacting with Persians, with pagans. And the stories about Jewish interactions with Christians are very interesting because they are so unexpected in many ways. For many years, the thinking was that there wasn't much about Christianity in the Talmuds, especially the Babylonian Talmud, because the thinking was, incorrectly as it turned out, but the thinking used to be that there weren't many Christians in that part of the world where the Babylonian rabbis were. But as it turned out, there are many Christians 
in Mesopotamia. That's where the Jews were located. And Christians who studied the Christians of that part of the world knew about their Christians, but they didn't know that there was much going on with the Jews. So recently, like in the past, particularly in the past 40 years or so, these scholars of Christianity in Mesopotamia and Judaism in Mesopotamia have really started to talk to each other. And there's a whole vast field that's opening up for cooperation between the two groups. I wanted to sneak in one more question about the bigger picture here, because as we've been talking this whole time, I keep wanting to put my own framework within my own religious tradition on this. And so I think I don't have a category for the broader perspective of how does the Talmud fit, and and Pete used the word earlier, of authoritative Within, if, if you were to go to a synagogue today, how is the Talmud different authoritatively than, say, the Hebrew Bible text itself, or, say, other rabbis like, you know, Maimonides or other parts of Jewish tradition? How does authority come from texts within Judaism, maybe particularly in the conservative denomination? Because I'm trying to figure out using my own categories of kind of Christian tradition and texts, and I don't want to superimpose that. Right. Well, in the modern synagogue service, there's a reading from the Hebrew Bible every Saturday, okay, every Shabbat. And they read from the Torah scroll, which is housed in in an ark and which is a pretty elaborate ceremony of taking it out of the ark and bringing it around to all the people. And then it's put on the shulchan, the reading table, and then there are people reading directly from the scroll. People in the congregation have translations usually in their hands. And for them, for the modern Western Jew, a lot of what is said in the Bible would seem very strange, very foreign. So then the rabbi gives a talk, the sermon, and what he or she says mostly is taking off from what's in the Bible, but incorporating mostly traditions from the rabbis, okay? And they would also choose those traditions which are heavily midrashic. That's what the tendency is, because those are the ones that speak to a, a modern Western audience without the greatest need for translation. And so, if someone is not going to become a scholar, that's probably the the extent to which they receive an education in these ancient traditions. The question often is, how much of what the rabbi, and it's usually a rabbi, is incorporating within his or her sermon is faithful to the original ancient text, okay? I might get into trouble with this, but I think a lot of what rabbis do is cut corners. They expurgate the tradition and make it more comfortable for a modern Western audience rather than ask the congregation to really confront what the tradition is and says and perhaps be challenged by it. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing is that the relationship is complicated and there are different ways of interpreting the accessing the tradition and bringing it into our current moment and that seems that's a that's a great point to end on i think because that's such a common thing that christians also in very different ways different texts but in principle they deal with very similar things so so thank you richard for being on with us this was really an education for us and we just are delighted to have you on and thank you for taking the time well thank you very much for inviting me i really enjoyed this Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. 
And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch our other show, Faith for Normal People, in the same feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Stephen Henning, Wesley Duckworth, Savannah Locke, Tessa Stoltz, Danny Wong, Natalie Wyand, Jessica Shaw, and Lauren O'Connell. 